A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as the bodies of 63 torture victims are discovered in the newly liberated Kherson region, we discuss the challenges of recording war crimes within arm's reach of the front line. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 17th of November, day 267. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Europe Editor James Crisp, and speaking to us from Kyiv, freelance journalist Sergio Olmos. I started by asking Dom for military developments over the last 24 hours. Well, hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. Busy, busy, busy day today. Lots and lots going on. Um, so the... The, the Poland missile strike is uh, still going on. President Zelensky has, has blamed Russia. We're going to get an update from James a little bit later on that. Um, Ukraine saying that Russia bears full responsibility. British PM Rishi Sunak saying the same thing. Polish authorities this morning saying that it, it might be, it's looking like a Ukrainian air defence missile that failed to self-destruct after veering off course. However, everyone is... The main comment is that Russia bears responsibility for for the strike, given that, that they've fired 80 other uh, missiles and I think 10 drones in the strike um, the same day. Um, separately, there's been strikes across Ukraine this morning. So uh, Odessa was hit first time in weeks, and the regional governor, Maxim Marchenko, said it was uh, infrastructure again that they were targeting there. In Dnipro, in the centre of the country, I mean, very, very startling imagery on social media. We're running it at the moment on our on our website. Morning commute in the middle of the city, residential area hit. I mean, a very, very big explosion. I mean, very let's say startling imagery. Go and have a look at that and make your own mind up. But it's pretty obvious, and there's no military target around there whatsoever. Uh, cruise missiles have been shot down over Kiev, and um, a number of people have been killed when a residential block was shelled in the Zaporizhia region. So it's still very, very busy 
across across the country. One reason for that might be Russia's continued efforts to to shift the narrative away from their their withdrawal out of uh, out of Hezon, the retreat from Hezon. It might also be because literally as we speak now, there's the the trial in in Amsterdam, uh, the trial in absentia of the four people held or on trial for the MH17 shooting down in 2014. You may remember Malaysian Airlines 20 Malaysian Airlines MH17 shot down on July 17th 2014 flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. All 298 people on board were killed. The um it is I think it's beyond uh, doubts now that the that there was a missile fired from a Russian supplied book surface to air missile system fired from the somewhere in the Donbass in the region of uh, of Luhansk city. Um Four four men have been tried in absentia, including Igor Gherkin, the chap we see popping up every now and again, who was the who was the leader briefly of um, of the Donbass region. But the that that is going on right now. We're hoping to get updates as we speak today. Roland is listening to it live, so he might be able to uh, hopefully come on tomorrow with a much better idea of what it all means. But we're hoping to bring some some results from that um, before we finish today. Just one more before I finish on the, on the quick roundup. So the grain deal, um, i.e. the deal to, to get to get grain out of Ukraine to the rest of the world has been extended. Uh, an agreement to export grain out of the Black Sea is going to be going to be extended. This came out initially from um, from officials in Turkey, and then the UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres has uh, has confirmed that, and he said that the deal is going to remain in place for another four months. He said the UN was quote fully committed to removing the remaining obstacles to exporting food and fertilizers from the Russian Federation unquote. So that's the kind of quid pro quo that Russia were demanding. Now a lot of that grain it's it's contested. Ukraine say a lot of that grain is actually stolen from Ukraine and then just taken out of out of Russian ports. But that trade is the is is the deal that's had to be done with Russia to get the uh, the grain out of um, well mainly Mikolaev and out out from um, Mikolaev and Odessa out through um, through Ukraine's Black Sea uh, ports and just one one other update we should note that uh, Sweden has donated 720 million Swedish krona that's about 60 million quid 70 million dollars and that's in the latest uh, the latest tranche of military aid that, and that's going to be spent on uh, air defence assets vehicles and winter gear and we, we know uh, Swedish. Friends and colleagues know a thing or two about surviving the winter, so that should be, I would imagine, pretty good stuff. Um, Other bits and bobs to talk about later, but I'll take a little pause there. Thank you, Dom. You mentioned there the Malaysia Airlines flight M17 um, and the ongoing inquest into what happened uh, that caused that flight to down and kill 298 passengers on board. I know that the result of that inquest is ongoing and we will know by later this afternoon but is there anything you're able to tell us about what the outcome might be of that trial um, and a bit more about the major players involved? Yeah so I think this is generally a a bit of um, legal nicety. Um, Now I'm no no legal expert but I think this, this, uh, this is the culmination of a uh, well, a trial has been going on since 2020, and obviously investigations since 2014, um, when the when the plane was shot down. And I think this this has to happen to to, to put on record what the um, what the the consensus of the international community is through the the international community represented through the court in um, in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. So I think this is. I, I don't think any outcome will necessarily surprise people who are not. Uh, you know, pro pro russian and pro separatist in the in the in the donbass but i think this has to happen 
to sort of mark it and move on for for history's sake. Like I say, it's the trial of four people in absentia. Th- three of them not um, not made any representation whatsoever. One person has got uh, instructed a legal team, although the individual was not there himself. Um, but there is. Uh, there is some form form of legal legal defence going on there, but I think what's important here, um, and I'm just tracking Roland's tweets as he's as he's live blogging it or live tweeting it. Um, if you want to know more than me, follow follow Roland Oliphant right now because he's live tweeting as he's listening into the uh, listening into the to the outcome of the trial. But I think it is just a market in legal terms so that history can move on and refer back to it in a uh, in a way that will only be contested by those um, absolutely uh, who who refuse to. Um, to to listen to to established established fact as established by a, an internationally recognised court. Thank you for that, Dom. I'm sure we'll have more to share with listeners tomorrow afternoon. Coming to you next, James. You've been reporting on the Polish village hit by a missile on Tuesday afternoon. What have you discovered about how that day unfolded on the Polish side of the border? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I'm going to make an attempt to pronounce the Polish village once, and then after that I'll just refer to it as the village. But it's Shevardu, and uh, this village is about four miles uh, into Poland from the Ukrainian border. It's a village of about 500 people, a tiny farming village. And I think, you know, we're often sort of talking about great big geopolitical uh shifts leaders big beasts on the world stage trying to sort these problems out but here we really have a a backwater where the reality of the war in ukraine has sort of come and hit very hard indeed and now it's not the case in this village but in other villages close to the border you could actually hear the russian bombardment on tuesday but imagine you're in this situation you're perhaps a farmer or a pupil at the local school and uh, I mean, for example, the, the missile landed uh, something like 300, uh, 300 feet away from that local school, uh, a few meters away from a block of flats. It landed on a grain facility and it killed two men. Now, one of our colleagues uh, on the ground there actually spoke to a school friend of the man uh, who was killed. Uh, the man who was killed was called Bogdan Voss. And he said, he told us that he was just terrified. He was convinced that the Russians were attacking. Uh, And of course, if the Russians attack NATO territory, then really we're talking about the possibility, the possibility of a world war uh, between NATO and Moscow. All of these thoughts were going through his head after the explosion. But it was only when the dust sort of settled and the smoke cleared that he learned that one of his very good friends uh, had been killed. So I think there's a real sort of interesting... You know, we'll talk about the big sort of political stories, but of course, these have a real impact uh, on people's everyday lives. 30, sorry, 40 of the pupils in the local primary school actually witnessed the accident firsthand. Uh, The local church, their afternoon mass, it was the first time a parish priest could ever remember, but no one turned up to afternoon mass. And that was because of this explosion. People were just too scared. They stayed. They stayed indoors. Uh, you know, there was obviously a lot of confusion. Quite a few hours before it became clear what had happened, and uh, you know, now they're left to sort of pick up the pieces. Thank you for that, James. Since it's become clear that the explosion was Ukrainian fire attempting to hit a Russian missile, what has the response been like in Poland? 
Well, Poland, I mean, the Polish president uh, went on television at about 11.30 UK time yesterday, and he said it's it's pretty unlikely that it's a Russian uh, weapon. But, you know, you have to think of this from a, a Polish point of view. Poland is a country which was invaded and occupied by Nazi Germany, and then it was uh, liberated before being occupied uh, by the Red Army. So there are real anxieties about Russian aggression uh, in Europe, uh, like a lot of the other former Iron Curtain countries, the Baltics. Poland is pushing for the hardest line possible uh, at EU level and at NATO level uh, because they do see Russia as a real threat. Now, despite that, they were quite smart in that, you know, they de-escalated the situation. Uh, you know, obviously, there was a lot of talk at the time. Would this be something which would trigger the, the NATO's one for all and all for one clause, the Article 5 clause? Poland didn't immediately trigger Article 5. They did carry out some initial analysis. There was U.S. intelligence which suggested it was most likely a Ukrainian missile. And the polls came out and said that, which I think uh, went a long way to kind of calming things down. At the same time, they have made absolutely clear that it may have been a Ukrainian missile, but that missile would never have been fired if Russia hadn't have launched what Kiev says is the heaviest bombardment uh, is launched against uh, Ukraine since the beginning of the war. So the fingers are still pointed at Moscow. Now, look, it is very clear that out of all of the European countries, very few have done as much to support Ukraine as Poland. I think they've taken in something like 1.4 million Ukrainian refugees. And this is from a government which had previously been extremely anti-migrant, uh, one of the most sort of recalcitrant uh, countries on migration issues uh, in the EU. There's been European Court of Justice cases about it. So, you know, you can contrast that with the very warm welcome that they've uh, offered to the Ukrainians. They've sent a lot of money uh, and a lot of weapons as well. So, you know, they are not turning away from Ukraine, uh, but um, I think, you know, they stand still very much shoulder to shoulder uh, with Ukraine and blame Russia for this incident, as does NATO, as does uh, Rishi Sunak. Thanks for your insight there, James. You've also written about the suggestion that the EU must buy weapons for Ukraine jointly as a bloc. What's the benefit of this policy? Well, um, I mean, it's a really interesting idea. Uh, basically, if you are uh, negotiating as a block, uh, if you're negotiating as a block of 450 million people, that gives you more heft in a negotiation. Uh, so you can drive down the prices. If you have a situation where the 27 member states are competing in, against each other for the same supplies, supplies which, because of the war, uh, in Ukraine are already very much in demand, you're going to have to pay a higher price. Now, that's not easy for a country like, say, Cyprus, uh, or even for a bigger country like Germany, which wants to plough 100 billion euros into its sort of chronically underfunded military. So you can drive down prices. Uh, that's important as well when, you know, we have a cost of living crisis. And you can get a better deal. Um, there is a and sort of another side to this. I mean, 
the EU tried this with the coronavirus vaccines. They negotiated for all of their coronavirus vaccine supplies as a block. Uh, they said that that meant that they got them a, a better deal. Now, uh, that uh, got off to a bit of a rocky start, uh, as I'm sure people remember. But now the EU is one of the largest manufacturers and exporters of coronavirus vaccines in the world. They were able to, to ramp up European industry to sort of meet that demand. And there's talk about doing the same, but with European arms manufacturers. Now, that'd be useful because obviously security of supply uh, is a major sort of anxiety these days, but uh, is also being pitched as a way of sort of um, building a kind of autonomy for the EU and building up the European defence industry, modernising it. And that's something which I think some member states, principally France, which is one of the largest arms exporters in the world, uh, will be very happy to see because it will mean more money uh, for French companies. So it's being presented as a sort of a win-win. I mean, on the negative side, uh, you know, there'll be people who have fears that one day there'll be a, a European Union army. You know, that is a, a fear which certainly Britain was very alive to when it was a member state. It's sort of it's less prevalent uh, uh, on the continent, uh, mainly because it's seen as a very sort of distant prospect. But it's definitely a step towards more defense integration. And, and the reason why they want to do this is because their stocks have been so depleted by uh, the arms and the weapons they've been sending to Ukraine. So, you know, it's a, their idea is get a better deal, get more weapons in to, get, uh, to fill up the stocks which have been depleted, increase defense spending, which helps with NATO targets, and boost to sort of sort of try and create a, a world-leading European uh, defense industry, which means they'd be less dependent on the US, maybe even Britain, uh, you know, and, and other arms-producing countries. Uh, it's it's a long way off at the, at the moment, but it seems to have uh, broad support. Thank you for that, James. Coming to you, Sergio. You're on the ground in Kiev today. What have the last few days been like for you amid heightened missile attacks from Russia? Hey, well, I've just gotten back last night from Mikhailov. I was uh, in Kherson, same day as Joe Barnes, Heathcliff, and uh, um, Colin. And so I know Joe was talking about Kherson uh, two days ago. Um, I, I kind of wanted to talk about just I was I was just thinking about how I, I've been here now two hundred and thirty seven days uh, out of so I've been here like eighty seven percent of the war. And I'm, uh, you know, in Kherson, there was this moment that Joe talked about when um, President Zelensky was talking to reporters and he was, you know, does anybody have any questions? And somebody yelled out, you know, Mr. President, what's next? And he thought about it and said, well, not Moscow. You know, we're not interested in territories of another country. But I, I keep thinking about that moment because there was a pause and just the, the fact that somebody asked what's next. Um, it's so interesting because being in Kherson, um, that city is mostly intact. You know, they didn't really, it's not destroyed like the other liberated towns we've been to and that idea of what's next. Cause I think we're all wondering that I, I came back to Kiev and today it's snowing and it, and it feels like, huh? Um, I, I it does feel, and I, and I don't have anything to back this up, but it's just being here since March and coming back. It feels like it's going to slow down. Um, the, the it's there's snow on the ground here in Kiev, and um, 
I'm just thinking about how the last few months there's just been this pace from the Kharkiv counteroffensive. It's just every week you're kind of planning which liberated town you're going to. You know, you're kind of expecting the Ukrainian army to make gains. Uh, you're expecting to, you know, go to the next place and the front line to keep moving. And I and just coming back today and thinking about um, all of that, it feels like when they ask that question of Mr. President, what's next and him pausing, it just feels like there's something in the air shift like, huh, things are going to get even harder now um, that that momentum, that pace um, like that, that we it feels like we hit the end of a chapter there and um and you know coming back to kiev after you know there was more than 90 missiles launched and most of them shot down it, it feels like we're entering a new chapter in the war that's going to be just harder on civilians um and that idea of just going to you know there's going to be new newly liberated cities every week or every i just it feels like that's not going to be the case yeah, thank you for that, Sergio. Last time you and I spoke, you were in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, before the winter had really set in. How has day-to-day life changed since you were last in the city? Well, it's, it, it, you know, it, everyone talks about how dark it is, and it is. Uh, you know, Kiev, Kiev kind of resembles a lot of the other cities uh, near the front lines where it goes dark at night. But, um, you know, the resiliency, you know, kicks in you know, right away and just a f- it, very quickly, even though it was, it got, it gets dark here, businesses still operate. And, um, I remember walking the street the other night and it was pitch black and there was some kind of shisha bar, like, you know, hookah, like a Turkish type bar playing really loud music. Um, and people were, they, they had like some kind of impromptu fire pit thing going outside. And I just thought like, you know, you can turn off the lights, but you know, Kiev is going to be Kiev. Um, and so, yeah, the, the city functions almost, almost the same, just, you know, without, without lights. And, um, there, there, it's like people take the, the energy conservation very seriously. You know, if you go into stores and you try to look at like electronic stores and you, you know how the electronic stores have the TVs on the computers on and the telephones and you can play with them. If you go into a lot of them, they're just off. Like all that stuff is off and you can still buy an iPhone, but they'll just have it turned off and they'll turn it on for you if you want to play with it. And so, you know, because of all that, you know, because everyone's taking it so seriously to conserve energy, um, they have talked about how even though blackouts have been occurring more frequently than they thought, in some cases, you know, people are using less energy than than they had planned because they are taking it seriously. And, and, um, it just occurs to me that uh, when everyone is on the same page, like when everybody understands the circumstances and the motivation is there, um, all of these hardships do not seem as hard. And th- that's just, you know, I think about that frequently. The lights off, run out of water sometimes. Um, it's quite cold and, and buildings aren't heated all the way. But um, since everybody understands what's going on, um, it doesn't feel as, as hard. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, tough winter and conditions are going to get worse. But that's one thing that, you know, just seeing how people react to to all this, I'm not as worried. Yeah. So as you were saying there about the winter ahead, I understand temperatures have dropped in the last week. How are people preparing for the months ahead? Yeah. Um, everybody's been talking about it. It's a, it, you know, people have to change out to winter tires. If you have a, if you have a car, you know, the car I've been driving around in, 
Um, it's been shelled before a different news crew had it. Uh, you know, I rent it and uh, before I went down uh, south, you know, the car guys let me know, like, you got to, we got to change it out to winter tires. And, and it, it's just a thing that I didn't even think about that is, you know, there's so many little things here that people prep for. Um, uh, if you don't have enough blankets, you, you got to go out and get some because, you know, buildings aren't heated all the way. And in the south, you know, talking to soldiers, um, uh, in here, I was talking to uh, this recon group in, in Hirsan. They, they've been fighting in Hirsan. They were in the city to kind of see the, the, see Zelensky, and they were kind of being greeted by residents, um, kind of what Joe was talking about, how soldiers were being, you know, being the, were the heroes that day. I was just talking to one of these soldiers who was telling me that, you know, they, they're going to keep fighting during the winter, but, you know, they're kind of, um, like they tested out a lot of their equipment last winter, but they have, you know, they have new equipment that they don't know it's, how it's going to function in the cold. And they, they, you know, they hope that they're going to be able to continue. They, they mainly use drones to call in strikes for the big artillery, but they have these kind of smaller stuff that they've put on, you know, smaller rocket stuff they put on the back of trucks. And they're not exactly sure if it, how it's all going to work in the cold. And they're kind of going to, you know, trial by fire. And, um, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of that. I, I, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of mistakes. There's going to be a lot of things that don't go right. Um, because, it, you know, I just drove back nine hours from McLeod to Kiev and, uh, you know, those roads, you know, it, it, like things are going to be slower. Logistics are going to be slower. Everything's going to slow down, you know. Thank you for that. And going back to your experience in Kherson a few days ago, could you tell us what your personal experience was like visiting the liberated city? Yeah, it was in, it was uh, it was incredible um, because for a number of reasons, I, I didn't expect for Kherson to be, you know, the liberation. I think shocked us all. I'm, I I know we I've been talking to different Ukrainians, you know, soldiers who just just talk about how you know. I, how difficult the fighting was in Hirson. I, mean, I was on the front lines a month ago, and I did not expect the city to be liberated this quickly. Um, and to see the city, it's intact. I mean, I, I've been now to almost I mean, you know every 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 time there's a liberated city, you know, in the last four months, you know, I've been there and I've been on the on every one of the press tours. And you know, Joe was talking about how he didn't have a seat and. I haven't had a seat on a press tour in, you know, in four months, you know, I, I've been to all of these and almost all of them are destroyed to some degree. You know, all of these towns, uh, Balaklia, Lamont, Kupiansk, um, you know, they, the, you know, they, they get battered in the, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the conquest for them. And Hirsan was basically taken without, you know, firing a bullet inside the city. And it's, it's it's a it's a, it's eerie because it's a regular city. You drive in and like all the stores, like you know they they're they're closed, but you can see cell phone stores and you can see supermarkets and they're all closed. And you know, none of them work. You know, there's no cell coverage in the city. There's very little supplies of food and uh, medicine and every all that stuff has to be brought in and and people come out to the town square to, to, like Joe said to get their to, to try to use a cell phone, um, but but it is it is the first time I've seen a, a re, you know, a liberated city that's intact where, you know, uh, you know, it, it, like in, in a lot of these places I go to, some people want to talk to press, some people are excited, but really you can just tell they've, they've been living a really hard existence and they're just kind of shell shocked and just want 
you know, food from the humanitarian aid. But Hirsan was like the first time where people are like coming out and they're dressed better than I am. Like they're dressed, you know, like you're, you know, like real classy Europeans. So they're, and they're coming out with their flags and they're just talking and they're, you know, and like, because the city is not in shambles. The city's not destroyed. Like there's just no utilities at the moment, but you know, it, it hasn't been laid to rubble. And that was, that was um, really interesting to see. It was also interesting because like Joe said, the the outgoing fire was you could hear it in Hirsan. The Dnipro is not far. The Russian front front the Russian positions aren't that far. The hand, you know dozen kilometers away. Um, there was uh, the EOD guys blowing up mines. You could hear those quite often. The, you know the president was there, President Zelensky. Which one thought, okay, are they going to start shelling this because he's here? Um, and and uh, it, it, it's it's you know, it, it is also interesting, the, um, like I said, the regularity of like, one almost gets used to these getting on a press tour, a newly liberated city. And then today, you know, Colin Freeman has this piece about the torture chambers, which we've seen time and time again, every time we go into a liberated city, uh, you know, we hear that the local police station was used to as a torture chamber. When, when I was there two days ago, I talked to a guy who was like, yeah, my buddy was tortured. Like, I'll set you up with them. You can you can go chat with them. Um, you know, the 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 Russians took them, and you know, and and it, this is something we see every time we go into a liberated area is is, um, is torture chambers. Thanks for that, Sergio. Dom, I understand that you have some updates on the torture chambers discovered in Herson. What can you tell us about them? I have. Yeah. So this is um, this is from Collins. Uh, story yesterday and Sergio hi hi great to hear from you again um be really interested in your take on this so uh, firstly the so Ukraine's interior minister Denis Monasterski has said that at least 63 bodies with signs of torture have been found in Herzon already uh although expecting to find many many more as these as these uh torture chambers and dungeons and horrific you know, burial places are uncovered but colin's got a piece in today's paper and online he's interviewed a chap called maxim who uh he discovered he was on a list of former ukrainian service service uh, personnel that was found by the russians uh and he was it was very clear to him that because he had served in the in the military he was being interrogated um and they thought because the russians thought that he was passing information about troop movements and other other pieces of information to the ukrainian military he says that he was interrogated for three weeks beaten elected Executed. He said at one point he was taken to um, his local police station in the basement there, had a bag placed over his head, crocodile clips attached to his ears and, and a powerful electric current put, put through his body. Uh, Maxim said, this is a quote, the worst thing actually was hearing the screams and suffering of people in other cells. He said our captors were partly just following orders, which is never an excuse anyway, but also seemed to be acting out of hatred. Uh, I mean, it's horrific stuff. Maxim was released in, in April and he's now helping the Ukrainian investigators and prosecutors that have moved into Herzon. Um, the police station where he said he was tortured, that's now being treated as a, as a crime scene by the U- Ukrainian authorities. Uh, in that building, the authorities have already found chairs with metal shackles attached and a device which they've said is is similar to an old-fashioned telephone that dispenses electric shocks, which is probably what um, uh, the one that uh, Maxim was subjected to. Um, I mean, the, the senior prosecutor there, Vladimir Kaluga, he said that investigations so far, have, or investigators, sorry, have opened 869 cases of detention and torture. 
um, but only 480 of the alleged victims have been found. Um, the others come from from stories and, and reports. Asked if he knew uh, knew what's happened to the others, he says, Un- "Unfortunately, not." Is the quote? Just don't don't know where these people are. Um, and yet more reporting. Uh, one of the prosecutors in the Hezon Regional Office told the New York Times that typical abuse was electric shocks, as, as Maxim um, spoke of, beatings with plastic or rubber nightsticks, suffocation by pinching the breathing hose on a respirator, a gas mask, soldier's gas mask that's placed over the prisoner's head. So, yeah, as we've seen before, when this this angry tide of of Russian weakness rolls back, it reveals a yeah, despicable scene of torture, abuse, and just the worst of of humanity. So, Colin's got that story in today. Um, Sergio, you may you may well have some have some thoughts on that. I've got a couple of questions actually for you from your from your recent time down in Hezon, if there's time. But, um, but yeah, it just looks like another horrific example. Um, but the prosecutors are there; they are treating it as a crime scene. So, when in future. Russia writes this off as, well, of course you would say that, wouldn't you? They're doing their best, the authorities are doing their best to catalogue this and and record it all all correctly. And hopefully one day people will be uh, held to account. I mean, I'll just just jump in quickly there, Dom, because, you know, there's a lot of talk about the war crimes and the need to hold these people for account. It's something that the Estonians mentioned, the Poles, sort of many other sort of uh, European countries. But every time these kind of outrages are are discussed or, or discovered, I mean, there was a lot of talk about the U.S. putting uh, Kiev under a bit of pressure to be more open towards peace talks, not to set the hurdle too high, uh, you know, before in, in conditions before peace negotiations could could take place. But I guess each time one of his chambers is found, it makes it all the more impossible for Zelensky to show any kind of softening or weakness or any sort of willingness to negotiate with the Russians, just you know, for domestic political reasons alone. So we've mentioned that a total of 436 war crimes um, have been committed during Russia's occupation across uh, seven detention centres, four of which we use for torture. How exactly will the world community go about prosecuting Russia for the war crimes? Are we going to actually see any repercussions for atrocities committed on Russia's behalf? Well, I'd be quite surprised, um, to be grimly honest. Um, I mean, we saw this in the wake of the poisoner, poisoning and murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London, 2006. Uh, the two people that were held after a very long investigation there um, held account for that. One of them's now dead, and one of them is, is a member of the Russian Duma. I mean, they... they the chances of getting hold of these people is slim. It'll be interesting to see what happens today from um, from Amsterdam about the MH17 trial, about how how much the world wants to try and do this. I mean, you know, the, the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, does have a good history of going after people. We saw that from the, the wars in Bosnia and the, and the wider Balkans. I mean, they do get hold of people in the end if they can. And that's why it's it's all the more important to do the hard work now to get the evidence so that when it is it is held in, in a court, possibly in many, many years' time, it is the best possible information upon which to base an evidential case and, and not, not easily thrown out by the other side of, well, you, know, it was, uh, you, know, you didn't handle the, the, the evidence correctly and, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, I, I mean nobody should un- underestimate how, how difficult it is to, um, I mean, not, not to identify people involved that, 
these days is, is less hard with radio communications and cyber chatter and what have you. Um, but actually getting hold of those people and, and holding them to account is is still a very, very tall order. But that in no way diminishes the the necessity of doing so um, and holding up as an example to the rest of the world that um, that these people will will be called out in, in the name of in the name of humanity. Thanks, Dom. You've mentioned they're documenting the crimes um, for future reference. I'm just wondering whether we're seeing an underestimate or if you think these figures of war crimes, detention centres, victims, etc. are accurate. How easy is it to document these things and how far are we away from a real figure? Well, we're, we're right to be cautious about any figures and documenting gathering evidence and documenting it is extremely hard at the best of times especially when it's still a contested environment and so close to to the line of control so close to the front line so it is very hard work i mean i would um i'd look to sergio here to be really interested in your your views here sergio about how how much effort the authorities are able to put into uh, sealing off these areas and and doing it all at all correctly, given the the pressures that they're under and the number of sites that that are revealed when when Russia withdraws from these positions. And of course, there's that there's that there's that natural urge of the people to to go back to their homes, to their families, to their friends, to their villages. They want to go in there and, and see what's happened and, and and help where they can. And and that, as we've all seen, as we all sort of know from you know, TV crime stuff you know, if it, it, it can very easily um, rub out any evidence that is there or make any evidence that that remains highly highly contestable but Sergio I'm really interested in your thoughts if you had time yeah of course it's the numbers have to be in, like they're they're preliminary and we shouldn't we shouldn't we can't, we can't emphasize in how preliminary they are I mean let's take Hirson for example at the moment they're uh, you have to go to the town square to maybe get a little bit of internet to call your family. And we saw lots of people calling their families just to update them on how they're doing and stuff, right? Then you're relying on humanitarian aid in your son at the moment. Uh, that's not to mention all the villages that, you know, I was at the front lines a month ago. So it's 30 kilometers, you know, away from here, son. All those villages are relying on somebody bringing in clean water, food, uh, bringing in, you know, generators and uh, cell towers. I mean, there's so much logistics. And and obviously the priority is the military. Like you still have the military. You can hear the artillery from the city of Hirsan. So um, we know there were there was already war crimes investigators in the city of Hirsan. Uh, even if even if people's top priority was to go to talk to them, there's just not enough of those guys. You know that the priority at the moment is just basic life sustaining function, functions. That that's the priority for the you know the civil side of the Ukrainian government when they go into these liberated villages. And just to give you an example for me as a reporter, right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've wandered into liberated areas where I talked to somebody or I, you know, I found out through word of mouth or something, some awful thing that happened that maybe we report on or I get, they tell me. And they, you know, the idea of them bringing that to the authorities you know, doesn't occur to them. You know, there are lots of people who terrible things have happened that they, it just happens to them. And unless a reporter finds out, they don't, their story doesn't, it doesn't surface, you know. I, I in Chernihiv, I talked to a guy who was executed. His brothers were executed. He was thrown into a ditch, and he's buried alive. He never talked. To, he didn't talk about. You know, like I think a month and a half after I talked to him, he went to the prosecutor's office. But for that whole time, he just didn't. He didn't say anything. Like we had heard about it through word of mouth in the villages, but he didn't go to the authorities. 
there's a lot of that in in all of these places right now i think the focus is just getting food water uh getting a cell phone you know coverage to call your family i think we're going to uh, uncover lots more stuff as time goes on and as the just basic life sustaining functions you know stabilize Thanks for that, Sergio. Before we wrap up, Dom, I understand you have updates on the forced forced adoption of Ukrainian children to Russian families. What can you tell us about developments there? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Now, this is something that Francis is is much closer to than me. He's been tracking these these stories, but he's obviously away at the moment. When he's back, he'll probably want to pick this up. But I just thought it's worth noting because it is um, it, it's come out today from the US based think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, a think tank that I happen to put a lot of stock in. Um, but it's you know, up for you to decide whether you, you do or not. You take your information from a number of sources. But they're reporting today that uh, the uh, prominent Russian military bloggers are chattering about a documentary that's that was shown from on uh, sorry November the 9th which featured several Ukrainian children from the Donbass that had been adopted by Russian families now this documentary claimed that Russian officials have evacuated over 150,000 children from Donbass in 2022 alone and as the ISW the, the, the Institute for the Study of War make clear yeah they are not sure how Russian sources get to that figure because Ukrainian officials have only estimated the number of children uh, to be between 6,000 and 8,000 that have been taken to Russia. Still a, a huge figure, obviously, but you know, we, again, we've got to be careful with the figures. Now, the Russian Federation Commissioner for Children's Rights, a woman called Maria Lvova-Belova, has continually advocated for deportations and adoptions of Ukrainian children, and she herself adopted a child from Mariupol. Um, and the ISW is saying that these forced adoption programs and the deportation of children under the guise of vacation or rehabilitation schemes um, is likely forming the back- backbone of a massive Russian depopulation campaign that probably amounts to a violation of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide and it could, could, you know, is leaning into ethnic cleansing. Um, so it's it's... A story that we've seen before that Francis has been very, very uh, seized with, correctly so, these deportations. And here are some more figures from a documentary, which I must admit I've not seen. I'll, I'll try and track this one down. Um, but I do I do put faith in the ISW's reporting, so I'll, I will have a look at that. Um, but yes, more, more information there suggesting about that these forced, forced deportations is one thing. To go an extra stage and have these forced adoptions of children is really quite chilling. But um, I mark it. Francis will undoubtedly come back to that uh, and I will t- I'll try and track down that documentary. Thank you for that, Dom. We're coming to the end of our time this afternoon. Um, if I can go to you first, James, do you have final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I think one of the aspects uh, which sort of hangs uh, over, particularly with the story of a Polish uh, village, is... You know, uh, we've had the G20 uh, this week. Uh, we've had leaders of countries like Italy, the UK, US president, China, you know, all getting together and trying to solve this, uh, trying to sort of curb the worst of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and I think at the same time, from what we've heard in on this podcast, but also what happened in that Polish village, uh, it sort of showed that even when you have some of the most powerful people in the world together, uh, they've been powerless to stop uh, some real local tragedies happening, uh, not just in Poland, obviously, but across the whole of Ukraine. And that's, um, I mean, that's, that, that's worth reflecting on. 
Thanks for that, James. Over to you, John. Uh, could you give your final thoughts, please? Yeah, sure. And I'll just go back to that, whatever this was, missile strike in Poland that's looking as if it was a malfunctioning Ukrainian air defence. And I, and I do do come down on the side that, that says that that is... I mean, that's technically relevant, of course. People need to work out why that happened if that was the case. But, you know, we should not shy away from, from taking a step back and saying, well, this is the responsibility of Russia, as many have said. And I would just ask, just ask us all to think about you know, what is the likelihood of President Zelensky personally reaching out to the families of the people killed? Now, you know, small, medium, high likelihood, somewhere in there, I don't know, I'm not going to put a figure on it. But you know, it's very unlikely, I would suggest, to be zero, because we know what this guy's like. We know that he responds on a human level. And I would say that that is the difference between Zelensky and Putin. And it's that moral grounding and the sense of responsibility that he has and, and that runs through the Ukrainian, seems to run through the Ukrainian system and the military, that more than makes up for the mismatch in the numbers of troops in the field and and could well you know this could well be the moment in the future when Putin looks back to wonder what the hell's just happened that he turns to to explain how he got this whole thing so wrong I just think this is quite quite an important moment to mark and I like I say I just ask ask us all to have a have a think you know is, is Zelensky going to do something personally because Putin would never do that and I think Zelensky may well and if I may final 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 thought to a woman who was very, very helpful to us in Kiev when David and I went out there. Um, happy birthday, Anna. And I hope in the, it's the first snows of, of the season, as I understand it, today in Kiev. And um, I wish you well. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you're able to make a wish for the first snow. And I hope your wish comes true. Thanks, Anna. Happy birthday. Thanks for that, Dom. And finally to you, Sergio, what would you like to leave our listeners with to think about? I leave them with something that I've been thinking about. A lot of the reporters have been thinking about uh, the, a lot of us that were down in Mikolaev Hirsan, which is when that missile fell in Poland, you know, President Zelensky that night said, you know, this is a Russian missile. And the foreign minister said, you know, that Russia's promoting this conspiracy theory that, you know, this was could have been Ukraine anti-air defense. And, and now we, you know, we're hearing from, you know, Western officials that they, their assessment is that this is likely a, you know, Ukraine anti-air defense that went awry. And I think that, for me, what I think about is, you know, if Ukraine officials get something wrong like that, you know, it, it, they very quickly and clearly got to come out and say, my bad, we might have got that one wrong. Because if they don't, like a lot hinges on them, you know, the, the fog of war cannot extend to, you know, uh, Zelensky, you know, it, 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 very clearly these officials need to say, like, if they get it wrong, they need to come out because, when we, th- when we talk about things like, you know, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant or, um, you know, we're, we're getting Russian statements that, you know, are clearly make no sense. And we're, we're relying on, you know, Ukrainian uh, officials to say, no, come on, we, you know, this is what's happening. And, and we're relying on that. I think when, when, you know, if they get something wrong and they don't immediately come out and say, that's going to be a, a real issue. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we were, a lot of the Western press corps was just in Kherson. It was a very tightly controlled press tour. It was on buses. Obviously, they're opening that city up more and more. People are able to drive, you know, press are able to drive around freely now and kind of go and interview, you know, in their own cars and stuff and stay overnight. But if if officials get into that hazy territory where, you know, we start not to want to quote them right away, that's going to be very, very tricky for Ukraine. And, I, and I'm looking now to see, you know, the next 48 hours, 
hopefully, you know, officials kind of do not repeat that thing where they, you know, when it needs to be very clear, like if they get a mistake to just own up to it very quickly. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine the Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.